told you guys the story of how I met my wife? You can say, no, I'm going to go forward anyway. So I, I got reminded of it because a couple weeks ago, I went downstairs and hung out with the high school students and middle school students, and we did a Q&A. And downstairs in the room that now we call the gathering space because we're super creative with names at CBC, we used to call it the dungeon, right? Way worse when I first got hired here 12 years ago. And, and every year, I think I'd been here for a few months, I can't remember, every year they did this thing called senior speeches. We still do it. It's kind of a big deal. It's the students and student communities. And, and they invite their family, immediate family, and just our student community at the end of every May, at the end of every academic year, our seniors get a chance just to say, hey, this is what formed me. I'm going to give you a five-minute speech on this is what I value, this is what I've learned, this is what's important, this is what I charge students that are still left here to do. It's really beautiful. So I was there, and there was a girl named Julie. She's now my sister-in-law. She was there. She was a sophomore. And she walks up to me, and there's a lot of students and a lot of families, but mostly students in this setting. And she walks up to me, and she said, Charlie, I was 25, still wearing deep V-necks from H&M, everybody. Okay, just paint that mental picture. And, and she walks up, she says, Charlie, I need to tell you that my sister thinks you're really hot. At that point, the only other sister I thought she had was a sixth grader. And so I look at Julie and said, that's great, but let's not tell anybody about this situation right here. And she looks at me, I'm never going to forget this. She looks at me and she says, no, not that sister, my older sister, and points to my now wife and said her. And I said, okay, that'll do, right? <laughs> Maybe it's because she was the only non-minor in the room. I can't tell you how God works, but he's good, all right? My point is simply this, the way that we're introduced to people matters. It sets the tone for who we meet and how we meet them. It sets the tone for our relationships with one another. Let me give you one more example of this. After grad school, I became a long haul trucker because you know, and I was driving trucks across country, but I was pretty insecure because I was a long haul trucker with a graduate degree. And I'd go to some higher end boutiques on the East and West Coast and drop off furniture. And I would always, because of my insecurity, work into the conversation that I had a graduate degree. Because I'd drop off this furniture and I could see people looking at me like, oh, he's a mover, which is beautiful and good and great. And don't let anybody look down on those kind of jobs. But I felt insecure. And so I would subtly work into the conversation like, hey, where do you want this? I just got my master's. You want it over there? You know? And the sad thing is, literally, I, I remember how people's faces and tone shifted towards me from once they found out that I was actually educated to before they did. And that's a sad kind of depiction of where we are, but it's true. The way that we're introduced to people, whether it be what we think or what we think we know, the way that we're introduced to people matters. So we have an Advent series about introductions. We have an Advent series about how we meet Jesus because each of the four gospel writers started with an end in mind. They started by saying, I want you to meet Jesus because their point of these letters was to pass them out to churches and people and families and places and say, let me introduce to you this man that radically changed my life and will radically change the world. And the way they each in their own way introduced Jesus to us shows us a part of Jesus they wanted us to see. And so when I say, if I was going to ask you, how did the story in Matthew start? You'd say, well, there was a virgin named Mary and an angel appeared to her. And I'd say, no, that is not how Matthew started his introduction to Jesus. This is how he started it. In verse 1, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I told you today was riveting, everybody. We're going to do some genealogy work, right? And I know what you're thinking. Oh my gosh, I'm in person. I can't leave. No, you can't. And I know what you're thinking. I'm online. I can just 
exit out. No, no, no. We see that. We see one minute views and three minute views and big brother, everybody will know. All right. Um, But literally what Matthew does is he starts his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. And today I want to talk about why he does that. I want to talk about why he starts with genealogy. There's a theological answer to this, by the way. And the theological answer is that by starting with his genealogy, what he's doing is he's proving that Jesus has the right to rule and the right to be their savior through some different constructs that were promised in the Old Testament. So there's definitely a theological implication as to the why he started with with genealogy that's really important. But today we're going to pivot from the theological and I think go hopefully to the more practical, the one that hits home. Because what you have to understand about Matthew is his, his gospel, his letter is geared toward the Israelite people. And they had a problem. They had a problem since the beginning of their creation in Genesis 3, all the way on through their formation as a people with Abraham. They had a problem remembering that God was their good. Over and over, they had a problem remembering that God was their good. That's why in the Old Testament, as, as they did great things, as Jericho was knocked down and Jordan was split and they walked through, as they had victory after victory after victory. Do you know what God told them to do? Pile up some rocks right here, right now. And every time you walk by, not just like on the five Sunday months, every time you walk by, tell your kids, tell your kids this story. We just got through, I, I, every once in a while I lead this group that meets on Thursday mornings of men, and we just got through going through Hosea. I don't know if you've read Hosea before, but it is a story of God's relentless pursuit of his people through a prophet. I was leading towards the end. It's chapter 12, I think. And at the end of it, I talked to one of the leaders. I said, it seemed like we were a little not as engaged. And he looked at me and said, we've been in this story for 12 weeks, and it keeps repeating. What do you want them to say, you know? It's Israel ran, God pursued. Israel ran, God pursued through Hosea. It is the problem of the Old Testament. It's the problem of the people of God. Here's the thing. I think we have the same problem. This week, for some reason, I've done uh, some different housework later at night. Have you guys ever rage-loaded a dishwasher? You know what I'm talking about? Seriously, have you ever raged? I mean, like, rage-loading when you're kind of upset, and it's happened to me this week, and I'm, I'm up late, and my wife's in bed, and the kitchen's a disaster, and so I'm just going to do it myself because I do everything. And it's that moment of when you load the dishwasher in a way where you're not going to break things, but you're really close to breaking things. You know what I'm talking about? You have this whole fight in your head. And then you go back to the bedroom, and she says, everything okay? Yeah, it's great, right? That is rage-loading a dishwasher. <laughs> And the thing that's crazy to me, it hit me right between the eyes this week. So I'm doing that at night because I'm tired and because of all the things. And then like I get home the next day and the whole house is incredibly clean. And I forget that, oh yeah, she did that two days ago. Because here's the deal. It's really easy to forget faithfulness, whether it's God or whether it's our spouses. And you take that even farther and just in marriage, by the way, what happens is I was reading a study this week and it said one of the greatest problems that, that, that's indicative of couples that make it or don't make it or have big problems or little problems is simply if they remember that they're in this for one another or if they start forgetting it. Because one of the biggest reasons why couples fight is because they feel like somebody isn't as committed. It's this idea that we forget faithfulness. It's why when you get older as a parent and your kid starts to rebel, you want to say, what are you doing? Do you know what I've given you? And they're like, you haven't given me anything. I'm keeping a journal of the money I spent on my child and I'm going to give it to her when she graduates high school. And I'm going to say, here's 278,000 reasons why you should listen to me, <laughs> you know? It's going to be super unhealthy for her as a teenager. <laughs> it comes down to this point that we've seen throughout the Old Testament and with each one of us is that faithfulness is really easy to forget. So Matthew starts his gospel 
with the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And just as we start this chat this morning, you have to understand that when it says the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, it's not just a name, it's a title. So just so we can be on the same page, when they read this in the Hebrew context in the first century, that word Jesus is the Hebrew word uh, Joshua, which literally means that the Lord is my salvation. It means that Yahweh is salvation. So literally the name Joshua means he is saving us. That's what we see in the Old Testament narrative in the book of Joshua, saved them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. The second time we see it, the second most popular Joshua is in Zechariah 6. So they were unfaithful for a long time and they got taken over by other nations, Israel did. And they come back at one point and Joshua's a high priest. And they come back and there's no temple and there's no place to worship and they, they weep and they mourn and they say, where are we going to worship? We don't have a building. And I say, 2020, you'll get over it, right? <laughs> and they weep and they mourn and Joshua says, here's what we're going to do. And he leads them back into a promised land in a way where they could gather and worship again in a temple. The name Joshua means that Yahweh is saving. But, but also it says Jesus Christ and Christ simply means to cut down on time a little bit. He simply means anointed one priests were anointed, kings were anointed. So what this text is saying is that Jesus Christ is the anointed savior of the people of God. That's what Matthew leads off with. And then he's going to give you a genealogy to prove it. And a couple things you have to know about genealogies in the Jewish context. One is it's not like if you signed up for 23andMe and you got like a long history of everybody that lived in your family. Genealogies in a first century world, especially in a Hebrew context, um, they were given to prove a point. So you have full genealogies and you have selective genealogies. This is a selective genealogy. It means that everybody from Abraham to Jesus isn't included. They picked which ones they included for a purpose to make a theological claim. So there's a difference between this is everybody and these are the people that we want in our genealogies. And if you're tracking with me, if you understand kind of what's happening here, you're on the same page as me as we're gonna include the winners because that's the best version of us. So the idea that, that history is written from the perspective of the winners, it's why Zinn's book, A History of uh, the United States is so popular because it's written from a perspective that isn't the winner, you know? And so what he says is that we're going to have a selective genealogy about who our family is. And he launches right in with who you think he'd launch in with. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I, I probably don't have to go into a lot of detail on those two names, I'm guessing, because they are really popular. Whether you're brand new to the faith or you grew up in the faith, you've probably heard in some capacity of David and Abraham. D David represented the high point in the history of the Jewish people. He represented what they wanted to get back to. He was that picture of you with your shirt off in high school if you're a guy that you keep on your mirror and you say, I'm, I'm so close, right? <laughs> he is everything they wanted to be again. David was the reign and rule of the Israelite people as the alpha that they never got back to and are still trying to. David was a big deal, highly regarded and revered in the Jewish context. So that's why it leads off by saying, this is Jesus Christ. He is from the lineage of David. And then he goes and says he's from the lineage of Abraham. Abraham's big because he was the beginning of their people. He's the first one. That's why if you grew up, I grew up in a Sunday school setting where I remember singing Father Abraham as a child. You guys remember that? Right, right. Is that creepy to anybody else but me at this point? 
get a bunch of kids waving their appendages saying, my father's Abraham, your father's Charlie, stop it, right? I just, I just want to point out, if you're new to the church and you walk into that setting, we might want to be able to unpack that and explain it just a little bit, but that's a side note that we can talk about later. But we still to this day know who Abraham is because he's the father of all of these people. So really what he's saying in this text is he comes from two of the most important people in the history of our people. David was their high point in hope and Abraham was made them a people in the first place. We're in Christmas card season. I know because I've gotten some already. And, and that's who you put on the card, you know? David, David and Abraham are kind of like, <laughs> there was a couple years ago, I had this, what I think is a really beautiful idea. And I ran it by my wife, and we didn't do it. You'll see why. Uh, so I said, what if for a Christmas card, instead of picking a picture where we all look young and thin, why don't we just take a picture of ourselves every morning right when we wake up? Like, first thing. Like, take the photo from the nightstand, take a picture, and then the thing is just a collage of all those pictures. <laughs> she said no, all right? Because that's not what we do when we want to tell people about our family. We want to say, this is who we are. And so literally the day after Thanksgiving, we got two or three Christmas cards in the mail already. We hadn't ordered ours yet online. Those people are the people that, I don't have to open that card. I know you're crushing life and your toddler got early acceptance into Harvard. I get it, guys. Good for you. How did your card get here the day after Thanksgiving, right? I'm still digesting gravy. And, and you're like, guys, here we are, you know? This is what happens. It's the best and the brightest of the people. And you'd expect that. But then he goes on as he describes his selective genealogy. And he kind of describes some people. I'll read it. We'll go to verse 13. Because in this, we're going to bounce around a little bit because it talks about groups of people. Verse 13, we see a second group. He says, kind of the successful but not the stellar group. I'll read for you. After, after the deportation of Babylon... Jeconiah became the father of Shealtel, Shealtel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abuad, Abuad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father, father of Azor. I'm willing to bet all the money in my pocket versus all the money in your pocket, hint, I have no money in my pockets, but I'm willing to bet that you don't know who Azor is. And if you do, <laughs> come talk to me afterwards. Because here's the deal. It's crazy these guys are included. Most commentators, most people that study the scriptures all of their lives don't know who some of these guys are. When Matthew's writing his gospel, he starts where you think he'd start, and then he includes some people in the middle of it that really you'd say have no business being included in this lineage at all. These people that we've never heard from before, these people that are often overlooked. Sure, they don't ruin your family name, but they don't push it forward in any capacity. And what I think we're gonna see is we walk through a couple of these. So I think we're going to see, hopefully, ourselves in some of these different, you know, differentiations of groupings. You might have been the homecoming king, but most of us weren't. So then we move on to this group that really you ask the question, why do you put these people there? It's the overlooked and often unthought of. And in the middle of that, Matthew says, they were in the line of Jesus, this anointed savior and king. They were overlooked until right now. It's middle child syndrome 101. I love what it says about the family of God, that, that, that even though you might feel overlooked, God doesn't overlook you. That's another sermon, but a good principle. That, that God sees and notices and uses even those that the world doesn't see and notice, use, or put on pedestals. It's a really awesome principle of the grace, the depth of the grace of God. So you have this group that's overwhelmingly stellar. You have this group that's overwhelmingly mediocre. And then in the middle of your text, in verses five and six, you see these group of women. 
This, if you study first century, second century, all up until the Middle Ages, if you study genealogies, kind of blew people away. We've got to deal with some issues with the women in this text. First and foremost, why were they in there? Because in the first century, if you recorded a genealogy, you know who you didn't put in there? Women. There's a Jewish writing called the Talmud, and the Talmud is a collection of all the laws of, of, of the, the Jewish you know, faith and personhood. And so you have the 613 that God gave Moses, and, and that's all through the Old Testament. And then you have something called the oral law, which as the Pharisees went and as the rabbis went, they would talk about what these laws meant. And then they'd say, yeah, but there's also this other interpretation that I want to make law. That's why we have one law for Sabbath in the Old Testament, but about 37 to 39 laws around Sabbath. They had the written law and the oral law that was passed down. The, the Talmud is a mixture of, it's, it's both of them all together. It's the day-to-day way that you did life in the first century world if you were a Jewish person. And the Talmud states, a mother's family is not to be called family. But yet, here Matthew is putting his women in a genealogy of the anointed Savior. What's he saying about what God values, who Jesus came to save, and why he came to do what he did? But it's not just the problem that they were women. These women weren't exactly like the best and the brightest either. These women had issues of their own. They actually had pretty sketchy paths. You can look at them all individually in your Bible stories. It says the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba. She got introduced to the family of God through adultery. You have Ruth there that, that, that was the good one of the bunch, but she wasn't Jewish at all. You have Rahab, who people said probably had some sketchy things going on. And then you have Tamar, who probably is the one that you don't read the bedtime story of your kid to in Genesis 38. You can read it later, but let me just tell you, it's not PG. And all these women that A, were women, and then B, were sketchy, pasted women. And then here's the biggest problem, is they weren't Jewish. This is a Jewish lineage. This is a Jewish gospel. This is a Jewish savior to Jewish people. And in the middle of this, he didn't list their husbands that were Jewish. He listed the wives that weren't. You got to understand that he's making a point here about the depth of the grace of God in this situation. He's making a point about how beautiful and big the inclusivity of God's plan for salvation will one day become that they couldn't see quite yet. What he does is he celebrates the people in this text that that usually culturally people didn't celebrate. I love what one writer said. He said, of these four, two, Tamar and Rahab, were Canaanites. One, Ruth, was a Moabite. One, Bathsheba, presumably a Hittite. Surely they exemplify the principle of sovereign grace of God, who not only is able to use the foreign and perhaps the disreputable to accomplish his eternal purposes, this is good, but even seems to delight in doing so. I worked at a food bank in Chicago when I was in college. I'd never done that before. I grew up in this area. We don't have a lot of food banks in Double Oak and Flower Mound. And I, um, I remember my first day there. It was a homeless shelter that was a food bank. <clears throat> I led this team that went there. And so I was supposed to, you know, <laughs> be the one that was the most mature and I was not. And so we, we go there and, and the women were served at six and the men were served at seven and they had an hour long increments. I helped serve the men. And I think I was in the station that, that gave out corn and applesauce, I believe. And these guys would come through the line. And one guy came through and he said, hey, I, I don't want this and I want more of this. And I was like, fine. I mean, if you're going to be picky, <laughs> you know, my dad said beggars can't be choosers, but you know, you, you do you in this situation. 
And then another guy came through and said, I, I'm sorry, I just don't want my corn to touch my applesauce. And I'm like, guys, like, <laughs> you know this is free for you, right? Like I came from a very, you know, middle-class, suburban, uh, capitalistic environment. Where? I get done, and I'll never forget this. I get done with my shift, and I'm talking to one person that was on staff there, and I said, I don't understand how they can be this picky when they don't have anything to begin with. And he said, man, it's not about that. It's about dignity, and that's all they want. They want to feel like everybody else. They want to be able to make their own decisions. And what blew me away was the fact that I sat there in a position of help thinking, man, look at how good I'm doing right now. <laughs> and I thought, I am giving to you guys. I should be celebrated. Instead, this is what the gospel does. It celebrates those who God has given to. It doesn't just say reach out to people and give. It says that put those, in, those people in positions of prominence because it shows the beauty and the depth of the grace of God. It's not just about saving people that need God. It's about delighting in the fact that they're saved because they show us more depth in the grace of God than I see oftentimes in myself. And so in the middle of this text, in the middle of this narrative, we get this beautiful inclusion of these women. These women that show us so much about the character of God, so much about what God is doing and will do in our world. And then he goes on in the last group. You have some guys that really are very, very bad. Um, Ahaz, Manasseh, and Ammon. Those are all kings. They were terrible kings. There were good kings and bad kings in the history of Israel, and, and we don't need to get into the weeds, but just to sum it up, Ahaz, for example, had a good father who loved God, and then it says in the text that he didn't do what was right in the ways of God. It says in 2 Kings 16, he followed the ways of the kings of Israel and sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in detestable practices of, of nations that the Lord had, had driven out before Israel. So this guy's really bad. He killed his own kid as a sacrifice. But it actually gets worse. One of his grandkids, when you look at Manasseh, had a prof in college that would always call him Nasty Manasseh because he did such harm to his people that literally the Old Testament said the streets of Jerusalem flowed with blood because of his cruelty. And then finally, you get down to the last one there, Amon, who's the father of Josiah, good king. Amon was so bad that he came from a wicked place but two years in, he was so bad, wickedness, the wickedness of the people even said, this is too much for us. They plotted against him and assassinated him and then left the seven-year-old on the throne. That's how bad he was. Here's my question. Why are they in there? If I'm writing a Christmas card, if I'm telling you about my family, if it's a selective genealogy, I am not putting the people in there that make my family look the worst. But God does. Matthew does, as he tells the story of his people. There were good kings he could have chosen to include there, but he didn't do it. And I think the point of Matthew's genealogy, one of them, is simply that the purpose isn't that you're a perfect family, but you see a God who works in and through, who can't be stopped at accomplishing his purposes through all types of people. So this is just a really practical, applicational point for us right now. Whether you feel like you're the best Christian in the room, the worst Christian in the room, kind of somewhere in the middle, whether you feel like any one of those, this shows us that God can work through you to accomplish his purposes. And that's a good thing. You might be in this room or listening, being like, I really hate God. I'm sorry, but God can still use you to accomplish his purposes. And that's a beautiful and good thing that shows us the majesty of God over the power of any people we might come across. That's why in election season, we should vote, but we are not beholden to the outcome of the election to determine our destiny, because that's in the hand of our God, who's bigger than America, by the way. And so we look at this text and we see the overwhelming power and majesty of God through all different kinds of people in different places to accomplish his purposes. 
But I think there's something bigger going on in our text. I think it's not just about the fact that God uses different kinds of people. I think Matthew introduces genealogy to remind us of the faithfulness of God. Because here's the deal. I think when we look at genealogies, whether it's 23andMe or just recently, <clears throat> my kid is just old enough, we decorated the tree yesterday, you know? That's the first time we've been able to do it because she hasn't really been old enough and half the day is just spent trying to teach her to keep things on, not pull things off. Uh, but I have this one ornament with like my picture as a baby on it and we have one with her picture as a baby and one with Sarah's picture as a baby and, and Sarah held up her picture next to Eleanor's face and was like, who does it look like? I said, you thank God, and which is what all fathers should say. So it's the first time that you realize the beauty of genealogies isn't just the fact that we get to know about our ancestors. It's the promise that because we have ancestry, it's passed on to future generations. It's the hope we have because faithfulness has been seen. And that's why he ends like this. If you look at verse 16, 17, he goes back to where he started. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14. From the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14. It's a selective genealogy. He breaks up into three segments of 14. You say, why 14? Uh, just a simple answer, if you want to know, is there is a counting method in the Hebrew where all consonants had um, numbers attached to them. And if you take the consonants in David, we'll just do the English, the D, the V, and the D. Um, it's four, six, and four. And so David's name literally added up to 14. So what the gospel writer is doing here, and every Jewish person would have got this, what the gospel writer is doing is saying that all of this, all these generations point to Jesus is fulfilling the promises and the covenants made in David. He starts with David and Abraham and he ends in David and Abraham because those two were the crux, because those two are where the promises came from, because those two are where the purposes of God are seen. In Abraham, in Genesis 12, you get this idea, you get this promise that through Abraham, you probably know the scripture, all people will be blessed. And in David, you have this overwhelming promise that the rule of God won't go away and one day will be eternal. And so what we see in this text is, is literally that, look, faithfulness is really easy to forget, but remembered faithfulness shows us the purpose and the power of God through all people the purpose of God through Abraham, the power of God through David. What he's saying is, I'm still gonna use Jesus to bless the entire world. And how I'm gonna do it is through the lineage of David because he rules and reigns and will one day forever. He's proving a point to his people that he hasn't gone anywhere. Because when this text was written, God hadn't spoken for 400 years. It's a long time. It's generation and generation and generation of silence. And when you look around and the dishwasher's still full and nobody's done the work in the kitchen, you start to believe in that moment that maybe they're not there anymore or they don't care. You start to believe. You start to lose the ability to see faithfulness. And so ultimately, I think here's what this text does on a practical, not a theological, but a practical sense. I think remembered faithfulness gives us confidence in crisis and chaos. I think it's what it's doing for his people here. I think Matthew's point when he says, introduce me to Jesus, is that it's about to get a little weird if you read the next text, which we will at the end, but remember that you have been seen and you have been given and God has been faithful for generation and generation and generation and generation and generation. And so stop thinking he's not now. I think the point of this genealogy is to remind us of the faithfulness of God to give us confidence in chaos, in crisis. And it's hard to do because it's really easy to forget and not see the faithfulness of God. It's really easy to walk right past it. So let's talk about 
how we do that just for a second. Because I think it takes a lot of work. I think it takes practice because it doesn't come naturally. I have a friend of mine who every Christmas, no, sorry, every New Year's, he sits down, he journals whenever he can throughout the year. On New Year's Eve, instead of going out and hanging with friends or instead of doing something fun, he sits on a couch, he opens a good bottle of wine, and he reads back through his journal and he just sees how God showed up in that year that he'd probably forgotten about. It's a really good, easy win. Because remembering faithfulness takes effort. Forgetting it comes naturally. I got a question years ago from a kid and he said, hey, Charlie, everywhere I look, I hear that God is good, I know that God is good, but everywhere I look, every time I turn on the TV, I only see bad things. How can God be good with all this bad around us? And my answer is pretty simple. I, when I got that question, I was reminded of a story that somebody told me. They were talking about a, a family from, and I forget the country, honestly. I, I want to say it was India, but, but I really forget. And they said that this moment when this, this family came in from overseas and we were brought in by a missionary friend of ours. And they said, we walked into, and this is in Flower Mound, they walked into Tom Thumb and this person from the third world country just started weeping. And she said, you have this every day, whenever you want it. And we said, well, the avocados aren't in season, but we'll get by, you know? The idea that faithfulness is easy to forget, but, but really, really difficult to remember. <laughs> I wonder what would happen if not only did we just write down the moments of faithfulness, but we saw the small things as big moments of faithfulness. What would happen if every time we walked into Whole Foods, we remembered how good God was to us? You know? So, so I guess I'd say, write them down and then remember, don't overlook the small things. Sarah and I used to, my wife and I used to do this thing every week where we'd come back and we'd sit down and make a meal and we'd ask five questions about our marriage. How do you feel loved? And how can I serve you? And how can I pray for you? And the win of that was sometimes the conversation, but mostly it helped us see different ways that we would love each other, different ways that we could love each other. And no kidding, almost every time she would say, how can I serve you? Or how did you feel loved last week? And I said, like, you did the dishes, right? Because clearly that's a theme for me that I need to get over in my life. But it's just those things that I can say, okay, I know this is how you show love, so let me love you in that way. When we have these conversations, when we force ourselves to remember, when we see the small ways that God has been faithful, you know what we do? We keep seeing them. We do. And I think in the genealogy, he's unpacking people and saying, look at the ways that I've been faithful, even in the spaces and places that you didn't see faithfulness. Let's go back to the kings. God is faithful. And finally, I think I'd just say in the middle of this, as we try and remember something that's easily forgotten, man, it helps us see the big picture pretty good when we remember God's faithfulness. It's the idea that I can sit there with my kid and say, let's look at pictures of me as a kid at Christmas, you as a kid at Christmas, my parents as a kid at Christmas. So as we look at the small ways that God's been faithful, it reminds us of the bigger picture of his faithfulness, which gives us hope. Because he's been faithful in the past, he's faithful in the present, and gives us hope that he will be faithful tomorrow in the middle of the chaotic and in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of 2020, when I don't know what Christmas Eve is going to look like, and we're planning another outdoor service because we don't get the message over and over and over again, right? When God makes it rain every time we do something outdoors. It reminds me of the bigger picture perspective that no matter what 2020 looks like, God's still on the throne. God is still good. And we get to tell that story, the big story of God's goodness through the small stories of his faithfulness. I love that. So that's why, that's why I think he includes genealogy. And we're gonna keep doing that as a community because that's our job. Because as we tell these small stories, people see the bigger story of the goodness of God. In fact, on the 27th of December, 
We're not going to have an indoor service at all. We're actually not going to have an outdoor service either, right? What we're going to do is we're going to spend that morning and we're going to tell stories of God at work when the world shut down. And we're compiling a list of stories of how we saw God work in this year to remind ourselves and then be anticipatory for what he's going to do in the next year at CBC, in and through his people, in the good months, in the bad months. It's going to be beautiful. And here's what I love. If you ask most people, how does the story of Jesus start in Matthew? They're going to say, well, there's a baby, and there's a birth announcement, and there's a virgin, and there's a guy that's probably a little, has some questions. But he starts with genealogy. Because if genealogy shows us the faithful of God in the chaos, and the faithful of God in the hard moments, if it gives us confidence in those moments, what's written next makes sense. Because if he's introducing us to Jesus in a way and he's going to say, hello, hello, here is a God that's faithful, this is the story that follows next in chapter one. Now, the birth of Jesus happened this way. While his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband-to-be, was a righteous man, and because he didn't want to disgrace her, he intended to divorce her privately. When he had contemplated this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Take Mary as your wife, because the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This all happened so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did what the angel of the Lord told him. He took his wife, but he didn't have marital relations with her until she gave birth to a son whom they named Jesus. Before we even get to the angels and the announcement, Matthew said, meet Jesus, the faithless of God in a person and have confidence in what comes next. Because when we remember faithfulness, it gives us confidence in whatever chaos we find in our world, whatever crisis we might be in. So let's be a people that remembers God's faithfulness and maybe read some more genealogies. Let me pray for us.